We have existed for over 2,000 years. We have an estimated 2.4 billion members. Our group has outlived the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the British Empire, and we'll outlive every other empire. We were here before Facebook, before the iPhone, and we'll be here a lot longer than they will. And our founder did something that no one else has ever done. He rose from the dead. And by this point, they actually were intrigued. They thought, wow, what is this? What is this? this place you work for. And we started talking about the church in America and doing some research. I was fascinated to find out that there are 45,000 congregations in the United States. And one of the things we talked about, they're all led by either a pastor or a priest. And, and I'm one of those. And of those 45,000 congregations, there are 75 million members. And an average, an average Sunday, you have 35 million members will attend worship in the United States on an average Sunday. So you think about that, that's a pretty remarkable number. 35 million Americans will attend worship. So to kind of put that in context for the kids, and this was also pretty surprising, because in each class I said, all right, how many of you love football? And like only like four of them even raised their hand the entire day. So I don't know if that's a demographic crisis for the NFL or not, but not big fans. So this illustration kind of tanked at the very beginning. But so maybe some of you like football more. But to put it in context, how many today? So 35 million Americans will go to worship. How many million Americans do you think will actually go to a football game today? So today's a bad example because there was three on Thursday. But let's just imagine it's a normal Sunday. So you got 15 games on a normal Sunday. The average attendance for all those 15 games will be 952,000 people. So not even 1 million will attend. And then we start talking about, all right, how many do you think will watch? Will watch? Surely more people will watch a football game than will attend worship. So what would you think? Average, average viewership per game is 1.4 million people. 15 games, average weekly viewership for the NFL is right at 21 million people. So they're still, they're 14 million short of all 10 worship this morning. Isn't that remarkable? And then we did some other trivia to kind of put it in comparison and said, all right, the 10 most watched television shows of last year, what do you think they were? So I'll test the room, see if any of you can guess better. Let's see if you're smarter than a seventh grader. So anybody want to try and guess what the t- of the top 10 most watched television shows last year? Big Bang. Yeah. That's actually number one. None of the kids got that. So congratulations. You are smarter. They were guessing things like SpongeBob. That was not on the list. But Big Bang was number one. NFL uh, Sunday night was number two. Roseanne three. This is us four. NCIS five, six. Young Sheldon. Good doctor. On and on. So, uh, and the highest, the highest of any of those shows was the Big Bang season finale that had 18.6 million people watch. And they were very proud of that. But they thought, that's just getting right at half of the number of people who come to worship on Sunday. And some more trivia, just FYI, if you'd like to put that in context. What's the most watched television show in American history? Anybody want to guess? MASH, season finale, 1983, MASH, 106 million people watched. There was only 220 million people in America, so almost half of the country watched that show. That's true. There's not as many options. See, if you had more options, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same. 
And so uh, more people went to more people go to worship today than will watch all the NFL games all weekend. More people go to worship than watch the Big Bang Theory and all these other shows. We're not in mash level yet, but maybe we'll we'll get there at some point. So it's important that, like what is worship? What are we doing and what are people doing when they actually come together? So where we are in our sermon series, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and what we want to do is to anchor, to to plant our institutional soul in the soil of Ephesians and have the the character of our church grow out of that. And where we've come to in chapter 5 is what Paul says, this is what a spirit-filled church looks like. They sing songs and they submit to one another. They're marked by the songs they sing and how they submit, how they relate. So worship and relationships, worship and leadership. Now, so the last two weeks we've been talking about worship, trying to get a big picture of what worship is, why are our songs so powerful, how do we shape and structure our service so we can enter into and and be moved by the power of music. But in some sense, as we do, we're kind of tiptoeing around a very explosive topic. Because if you've been around churches, you know, in the last several decades, you know there's probably no topic more divisive than the music you sing. Just my own personal history. Before um, we came here and planted this church, I was a part of four other churches, and three of them in the, the time I was there were had undergone or went through different church splits. And in all three, the at least the external issue was the nature of music. One our church in Alabama, I was the sixth pastor there in six years. And in a 10-year time span, there had been two splits in the church. And it was all over music. So why is it so divisive? Why is it so divisive? The actual trajectory of the history is fascinating. Because if you would go back like 55, 60 years ago, nobody in America was asking, like, what is worship? Or what type of music do you sing? It's kind of a new phenomenon. But now, you know, we have every type of brand and every type of style of music you can imagine. So you have, uh, you know, we have contemporary versus traditional. You have uh, worship that's like a concert and then a TED Talk. Actually, one of the fastest growing churches in the state of Florida, they self-consciously try and recreate the dynamics of the club. So you come in and you got the smoke and the lasers and the beats. Everybody in the club, throw your hands up, and that's worship. Is that what it is? You can go and you find every type of genre or type of music you can imagine. You got cowboy church, classical, club, comedy club, every type of thing. Well, the question is, what is worship? What actually is it? When 35 million people come in different places, all types of places to do this thing we call worship, what are we actually doing? So what we're going to look at is Psalm 95, because here in Psalm 95, it's one of the best places, I think, in the Bible to learn about what worship is. What are some of the core principles behind it? What is it supposed to be? So we're going to spend some time this morning thinking about this, and then a really helpful as we transition, next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent, and so we're going to keep that theme of music and song going throughout Advent, because Advent is the season, Christmas season is a season filled with music. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at, because all of the original Christmas stories are surrounded in music. So the wise men, they come, and they come bringing their gifts to worship the Lord. They come to worship. And remember how Herod wants to trick them and says, tell me where he is because I want to go worship him. So understand, the original 
Christmas story is surrounded in music, and Luke gives us these songs that Elizabeth, when she finds out she's pregnant with John the Baptist, she sings, and then Mary sings, and then Zechariah sings, and then you have the shepherds when he's born. They see the angels who sing in the heavenlies. So we're going to look at some of these songs. What songs do we sing at Christmas? In one sense, the original Christmas carols. But before we get there, let's look at Psalm 95. Because this is one of the best places we can learn about what worship is. And there's just three things I want us to think about uh, quickly this morning. I just want to think about what, about why, and about how. So what, why, how? What is worship? Why do we do it? How do you do it? So what, why, how? So let's read through Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So Psalm 95 is setting up for us as part of a cycle of psalms that are calling God's people into his presence to sing his praise. So let's look at a couple things. First, I want you to see, all right, well, what is worship? What are they called to do? And the first thing I want you to notice, did you notice how their whole being is involved in worship? There's there's the voice, there's kneeling, and then there's hearts. So, oh, come and sing. You're supposed to sing, shout out, make a noise with your mouth. So there's audible voice, but then there's also kneeling. In verse 6, you bow down, you kneel, and then you hear his voice, and then you respond in obedience with a, a soft, grateful heart. So the whole person is taken up. And do you notice all the different emotions Oh, come, let us sing twice in one and two. A joyful noise, a joyful noise. So you're supposed to come with joy, but then also notice the emotions in verse six. Let us bow down, let us kneel. So you have these two dynamics, these twin emotions of joy and reverence. So your whole body, your whole being, your whole person is taking up, your mind, your heart, your will, but then it's also a joy and then reverence. You hear all of these things. And I think one of the things that this gets at is really the beauty and the glory of what Christian worship is really all about. One of the things, the way I concluded my presentation to the seventh graders is that one of the reasons I love my job is because I don't know if there's anything else in the world that can so challenge your mind, satisfy your heart, and change your life. It can stimulate and challenge your mind. It can satisfy your heart, and then it can change your life and your world. And that's what we see in worship. All The whole person is taken up. Mind, heart, will. They think, they feel, they do. 
And then notice the different kind of emotional expressiveness. You're to come joyfully. And this can be a challenge for us because um, the way you naturally express emotion and joy can be a, a, a result of a lot of different things. So some is just cultural. Like some people from different cultures express joy just a different way. Some cultures are more, um, they express it with more volume and more emotive and then some less. But don't think because someone's not expressing joy the same way you do, they're not joyful. But it's also not just culture, sometimes it's personal. I'm amazed at uh, my little girls, because they're only 14 months apart, and the way they express joy and excitement is so different. And I'll let you be the judge which parents they follow after, but one is so just explosive. And you see it's on her face, it just comes flooding out and has this explosive movement. Another so like internalizes it and is and, and almost is like holding it in, but it doesn't mean because she's not explosive that she's not joyful. And that's why we have to be wise as we think about worship. There should always be worship, but there has to be a range to allow people to express their joy in a way that's fitting and natural for them. And love is being aware of how others express their joy. But not only is there joy, there's also reverence. These things have to be held together for real biblical worship, reverence. So it, it takes up your whole being, but it also ascribes what worship is, is worship, the English word worth-ship, uh, uh, shipping, ascribing worth to something. It's ascribing worth, giving something the, the worth, the glory that it's due. So it's ascribing worth. Notice all the reasons, the sharp reason words in verse 3, for why do you come with joy? Because there's a reason. God is something. He has done something. He's a great king. He's a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the seas are his. He is the creator. Look what he has done. Why? You ascribe worth. Look in verse 7. For he is our God. We are the people of his pastures, the sheep of his hand. So we come, we worship, we come with joy because of he's the creator. We come with reverence because he's the shepherd and redeemer. And so we come, there's, there's reasons. Now, what's interesting is you really unpack what the Bible says about worship, and you begin to see that worship is actually not something, it's kind of a misnomer to say 35 million people come to worship on Sunday morning because actually how many people in America? 375 million. How many people in the world? Every one of them actually aren't going to worship every Sunday morning. You're doing worship every second. So worship actually isn't something we kind of collectively do. It's actually a part of who you are. One of the things we've actually, we're designed to worship. Have you ever heard the phrase where they talk about somebody who has an incredible skill? They talk about how it's become second nature. Like, oh, look, they're a wizard on the soccer pitch. It's just like second nature. They were born with a soccer ball on their foot. And you think, well, what does that mean to be second nature? We asked Dr. Goodman, I don't know if any baby has ever been born at Winnie Palmer with an actual soccer ball on their foot. I think that's something you have to learn. And so we talk about first nature is the things we do instinctively and naturally. You're, how your body works. You just breathe, you eat, you digest. Just, that's first nature. But anything that to becomes second nature is actually something you kind of have to work at. You have to form the habits that make it instinctual. 
And we actually worship as a part of our first nature. The problem is we just worship the wrong things. And so one of the reasons we come every Sunday is to try and rework that first nature so worshiping the right things becomes second nature. It becomes instinctual. You know, real worship is one of the most natural things you do. So let's think about, let's do a little diagnosis so we can start saying, all right, when are we doing it? And there's three questions that can really help you diagnose your own heart to say, all right, what or when am I worshiping something? One way to tell what you worship is where does your mind most naturally go? Where's your daydream destination? Do you have a certain place that you just naturally, when you're not mentally being pressed to think about things right in front of you, that you just naturally slip into a daydream destination? That place or that thing or what's happening there is probably getting at something that's close to your heart, something you worship. And it can be things, it can be locations, it can be people, it can be situations. We, uh, we had a situation two weeks ago because one of Maddie's loves is the nutcracker. And her entire life, she's grown up loving the Nutcracker. And even when she was two, we would uh, we had this ballet video that she would watch and had it memorized. And it was the Nutcracker, and it was prima ballerina, and it would explain the whole thing. And at two years old, she'd like hear the Nutcracker in. Um, we'd be like in TJ Maxx, and she'd hear it, and she'd go, oh, "Mom, that's Peter Tchaikovsky." And then people would look at this two-year-old like she's a prodigy, and we wouldn't tell them otherwise. We'd say, "No, kind of, kind of," and. Uh, She's been asking to unpack her Christmas stuff for four months to get out the, our toy nutcrackers. And we were at Sam's last week, and she walked in, and there was this giant six-foot, you may have seen it, nutcracker. This is as tall as I am. And she's, <gasps> and then runs up to it, and it's over $200. And so, and and, and this nutcracker, and then I started a couple days later, and her and I, we kind of wear our emotion. Well, you can tell when we're processing things. And I was telling her something, some anxiety in the in the heart. I said, "Matt, what's the matter?" She said, "I just can't stop thinking about the nutcracker. You know, I want it so bad, but I don't want you to have to spend all your money on it." I said, "Thank you. Trust me, I will not." <laughs> and see, it's captured the imagination now. It can, it can be things. I mean, there, there can be objects that capture your imagination. That's getting close to worship. Or it can be places. It can be people. It can be situations. And what's, what's, what can cause relational tension is sometimes what captures you doesn't capture those people around you. So you might have your imagination captured by the most beautiful pair of leather shoes you've ever seen and how they'll perfectly complete 75% of your outfits and you just need them. And your Neanderthal husband might not see the value in those things. I don't know if you saw Jimmy Fallon this week. They had this little kind of funny skit where they were showing a security guard who security guard was you know, supposed to be keeping security on Black Friday. And he was kind of in the corner and he was doing this number. He was practicing his golf swing. And they were mocking him like, oh, security not be very tight. And said, so, don't make fun of that man. I can sympathize. I can understand. His, his, his imagination has been captured. So where do you go? What do you daydream about? Where do you spend your money most effortlessly? Where it's like, this isn't even spending money because it's just a necessity. That gets at the things that our hearts really worship. Or another interesting one to think about is in what ways or what do you experience where it seems like time is not there? Like you just experience, it seems like um, 
You know, they say time flies when you're having fun. That's sort of true. It's really time flies when you're worshiping. It means you're tasting this foretaste of eternity where it's actually timeless, where you're experiencing, um, almost experiencing a foretaste of eternity. So those are elements that can help you diagnose, all right, where do I experience those things? And you really get at the heart of what worship is by understanding the Hebrew word for worship is our word, we, you know what you've heard, it's called hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallel means to boast, to glory, to brag, lay, all of you. Yah, Yah word really gets at and what, is, what the psalmist is getting at here and what the whole Bible tells us is that deep down in every single person's heart, in every soul, we feel that our lives really wouldn't be worth living or have value or significance unless we're connected to something, something of value, something larger than us. Sometimes it can be sports or just peace or security or material possessions or image. In our world, it's really a lot of, it falls under the umbrella of achievements and accomplishments. But it's very clear that we have to have something. And what one of the best places in the Bible to look and say, what does it mean by worship is go to a famous passage in Jeremiah 9, where it says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Boast, hallel, worship. Let him not brag, boast, worship about his wisdom. Or the strong man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches. Those are the things that tend to take our hearts. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and he knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. In these things, I delight. That's what it means to boast in something. That's what it means to worship. And this is what we're commanded to do. So that's what it is, but why do we do this? And in some sense, they kind of flow together. One of the reasons we do it is because it's part of how we were designed and created. It's part of our first nature, the most natural thing we do. But it's also not just one of the most natural things. It's one of the most powerful things. Because you'll always be true to the places that you found delight in. You'll be true. You know, I think you, one of the real critiques of the church you could make is, all right, if 35 million people are worshiping every week, why is our country in the state it's in? Shouldn't that permeate into the world to create more generosity and justice? Why does it seem that so many of those worshipers are still so selfish and judgmental and messed up? And I think that's a valid critique you can make, but I do wonder, maybe, maybe if it wasn't for those 35 million worshipers, things would be a lot worse. We don't know what, how bad it would be. And one of the glories of my job is that I'm on the front lines of being with people and watching how worship has transformed their heart and seeing lives, untold number, actually transformed. But worship really is the place that real life change happens. One of the reasons, in one sense, we're not better than we should be is because um, real, the goal of real worship is to get the things we know in our mind driven down into our heart. That's part of its purpose. And as long as that doesn't happen, there will be a disconnect. We won't uh, live uh, as we should. So that's what worship does. It drives it down. It's one of the practices that gets it into you. So it actually changes you. And you know you begin to change when you begin to perceive and view God. You can see in your worship as you begin to perceive of God not just as useful, 
but as beautiful. The ultimate end of worship is to bring you to a place where your, your imagination is captured by the beauty of God, where he's not just useful, but he's beautiful. Everybody starts out the Christian life thinking, you know, knowing that God is useful. Read all through the Gospels. Everybody who comes to Jesus, they come because they need something. And so often he gives them that. But the whole goal of discipleship is not to stay there. This past year I was doing some reading trying to um, learn the skill of having more productive meetings. So I know some of you, you were in a work environment where you've experienced death by meeting. It's like one nonstop, endless, useless time vortex. And uh, I was, an interesting podcast by Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist that works at the Wharton Business School. And on his podcast, he was interviewing this guy. I can't remember his name, but he was the Cisco meeting czar. And his whole job at Cisco was to go around to every meeting, and he's just like the, the meeting cop. And whoever's running the meeting, he'll bust it. He's like, if it's longer than 20 minutes, whoever prepared, you failed. And I want to know, every single meeting, you should print up a one-page memo that describes everything that's going to be covered. You send those out. I want to know what are the agenda, the action items, the next steps. Can it, I want an efficient meeting, so no sitting down. I want everybody standing up. No chit-chat. Don't want to hear about people's problems or feelings. We want goals. We want outcomes. Those are efficient meetings. And uh, now imagine if you took, so I don't know if the meetings are as married or not. But imagine if his wife called him one day and said, we really, I really need to spend some time with you. And so what are the goals, objectives, and outcomes? What, uh, what's the agenda? Got any action items? What are the next steps? She might say the next step is not for me to knock you upside the head. Because there's a big difference between a business associate and someone you love. The dynamics of the relationship are different. And one of the things real worship does is it transforms your heart so you don't see God as a business associate. You see him as one you love. And you move to a place where you love. And in one sense, there is a place. The Lord has even taught us. There's actually two different types of prayers. Prayers that are more business where you petition, where you're asking the Lord for things. But then there's prayers of adoration where you're just extolling and adoring and loving. And in the Lord's Prayer, you can see both. Give us this day our daily bread. We have needs. Protect us. Don't lead us. Lead us here. Forgive us. But it's also hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And so it's really in worship that those things get shifted, get worked out. Now, lastly, let's think about the how quickly. How do we worship? And a couple things I really want you to see here is one, notice how corporate it is. It's corporate. All of the verbs here are plural. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come. Let us make a joyful noise. Verse 6, let us worship. Let us kneel. He is our God. We are his people. Today, if y'all hear his voice, they're all plural. And one thing is you can't experience real worship in solitude. I mean, one of the glories of the gospel is that Jesus is a personal savior, but he doesn't save you so you can be alone. He saves you to bring you into a people. And there's realities about who God is and who you are you'll never know or experience without people, without a community. You see C.S. Lewis in his book on 
friendship has this interesting kind of dynamic where he was part of a group of, of really close friends called the Inklings, like J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was one of them. Charles Williams was one, who was a famous professor and writer. And they had this group. And uh, he talks about when, when Charles died... One of the way he comforted himself is, well, at least, you know, Charles has died, but now I'll get more of Ronald, more of Tolkien. He says what he actually found out is not when Charles died, he didn't get more of Ronald, he got less. Because there were aspects of who he was that only Charles could bring out. He says, apart from the group, uh, I actually got less of that person. And that's the same dynamic here. And this is something that's hard for Americans because we're such rugged individualists. Like a Barna survey says that 80% of Americans think you can be a good Christian without going to church. And I hear that, and I don't even understand the categories. Like, it doesn't make sense as an actual category. It's like saying, can you be a good husband and not be married? Can you be a good father and not have children? I, I, I think I'm missing the categories. It's like, what color is a square? No, this, it's category confusion. And so they're all together. But notice how it's us, but it's us doing the work. Let us sing. Let us. It's not a performance where you're a spectator. You're a participant. It's also rhythmic. And this is something, there's a very important rhythm that happens in the structure and cycle of worship that we try and pattern our worship after. So we sing, he speaks, we respond. There's joyful praise, there's thanksgiving, there's confession, there's you hear his voice. There's a rhythm that shapes. The whole, in one sense, the whole service is meant to be crafted in such a way so you come into his presence and encounter him in the ways that you see here. You know, it's fascinating if you just study worship services, not just in America in the last 30 years, but in the church all across the globe for the last 2,000, all of the, the best worship services have a certain gospel-shaped structure where the whole point is to bring you into God's presence so you live out and experience the gospel. You're called by Him into His presence. You confess your sin, and then you uh, ascend into His table, and then you feast at His word and His table, and then you go out joyfully responding to what you've heard under the, the benediction, His good word that's over you. There's a, a shape to the whole service. See, it's not like a modern entertainment event. So you know how modern entertainment events, you kind of have the warm-up act, and then you have the main event, and then you go away. But that, that's not how worship is. That's why um, it's important to experience the whole, the whole movement, the whole thing. And it's also important just to know what's happening so you can engage while it's happening. Because so often we can just kind of go through the motions and we become desensitized to, to what's happening around us. Have you ever lived like really close to an airport or really lo- close to like train tracks? When we were in Alabama, we lived really close to train tracks. And, it, you know, of course, it was maddening because every time the trains go by, every picture on your wall would shift. So people walk in and all of our stuff was crooked. And I was like, well, what can you do? And, you know, you kind of walk in the house and it would go by and it'd shake the whole house. And, like, the first time people would visit, they'd start panicking. Like, there's an earthquake. Hi, hit the deck. And then after, you know, six months, you, you, you don't even know that it's happening. It's similar to, like, if you come over to our house now, you'll hear a baby crying and then you'll wait for some response, and then we might not even know what's happening because you just get desensitized and you hear them over and over. And worship can be the same way where you just come and you, you, you lose touch with the beauty, the reality of what 
you're experiencing. But then this last thing, it's, it's rhythmic, it's corporate, but it also should be restful, soul rest. Do you hear there's this, this, this stark thing in verse 7 and starting in verse 8? Today, if you hear his voice... See, the whole point of worship is to come into his presence so you hear the living Lord speaking to you. You hear his voice. Then he points them back to an episode that happened to the Israelites hundreds of years before in the wilderness. He says, don't harden your hearts. So that's the whole question about worship, the condition of the heart. As as you did at Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. And then notice in verse 11, they haven't known my ways. They've gone astray in their heart. In verse 11, I swore my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. Because the goal, the end, is to enter into soul rest. Where you lay your burden down and you get it off your back and you experience the deep word of rest. And the story here is a reference to Numbers chapter 11 when they were going through the wilderness and God was miraculously providing manna in the desert. And then their response after they had it was, this manna, this manna, we're so tired of this manna. They were receiving miraculous provisions and they weren't grateful. They weren't thankful. They were receiving and said, this manna. And what, and what Moses uh, it says, they had hardened their hearts. They were receiving God's goodness and weren't grateful. He says, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Let his voice have its powerful work on you to change you and shape you and soften you. See, the real key, what makes real worship worship isn't so much the style or the structure of the music. It's the sound of the voice. Do you hear the living Lord speaking to you through spirit and word? And that's what's going to shape you. That's what's going to change you. That's what's going to renew, restore, redeem you. Hear his voice. And as we hear that voice rhythmically, regularly, it's what can make hard hearts soft. And it's what can make weak hearts strong. We hear a great story from a pastor. It's also a small town, a small country town. And telling a story about one of the kind of first people at his church that really experience this transformation. And like small country towns, you kind of have the notorious sinners that everybody knows they're, they're sinners. And in small, especially small country towns, everybody uh, will kind of gauge their morality based on theirs and kind of exalt themselves because, well, we're, at least we're not like Jojo, you know, the town drunk. And so this was, this was Jojo. And uh, the pastor said he was functionally illiterate. Uh, couldn't have had a whole job, and people thought he was crazy. He was, he was mad, but he was, he was mad at his parents. He was mad at the government. He was mad at people of other races, mad at his wife, mad at his kids, and just mad at everybody. And he started coming in towards him and started being uh, slowly changed and shaped by the gospel. And the pastor started noticing, like, he's, he's actually changing and his wife, she didn't know what to do. He was, he was becoming softer. And one and the pastor was sitting at him and just said, you know, tell me, you know, what's, tell me about your life. What's, what's, uh, what's going on? You know, the anger's going away. How? And uh, his response was, well, you know, here's the thing. For my whole life, people would do things, and I would hear these voices in my head that would say, you're nothing. You're trash. You're illiterate garbage. You will never be nothing. You ain't going to ever be anybody. And I'd hear that, and I'd get so mad, and I'd get so angry, and I'd lash back. 
And he says, but slowly I'm starting to hear another voice. And the pastor's like, I mean, he was like, you know, in a modern secular school, he, he didn't know how to respond to that. Well, what voices are you talking about? Is that the voice of your father? He was trying to like psychoanalyze him. And he was like, no, 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 get out, no, get out of here with that. And he said, look, I, I, I don't know where the voices come over here, but slowly what I'm starting to hear is a different voice. And he said, when I start to hear that, when the voice says, you'll never be nothing, you ain't ever going to amount to anything, I say, well, I already am. You're, you might be right, but actually I already am something. You are nothing. And he says, no, I am something. You are going to be nobody. He says, no, I, I actually already am somebody. They'd been working through Romans 8 in, the, in, in their church. And the, the power of Romans 8, that word of the gospel coming from the Son, was starting to speak a more powerful word in his heart. So when he would feel guilt and condemnation and start to get angry, he'd be reminded, no, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And by repentance and faith, I am. So the voice of guilt became smaller and the voice of the gospel became louder. And then when he'd hear the voice of suffering could come, you can, you can go to Romans 8 and hear the voice of the promises. He'd go, and when suffering would come, uh, when that voice of suffering would come, another voice would drown it out with, I consider this present suffering not to be worth compared to the glory that we will receive. Or when the voices of anxiety rise up, you know that I know that in all these things God is working for the good for those who love him. And are called according to his purposes, and the voice of accusation start to come. You can respond with the voice of, if God is for me, who can be against me? Or the voices of self-pity, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? If I don't have these things, it's not because God doesn't love me. It's because he uh, has something good that I don't know or don't see. Or the voices of separation and grief and loss would come. He said, no, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So when that voice says, you aren't ever going, you're always going to be a nobody, he can say, no, in Christ I already am a somebody. And it's that voice that transformed his heart. And I would dare say it's that voice that of 35 million people every Sunday actually heard on a rhythmic, regular basis. I think our country might look a lot different. That's the voice we hear, and that's the voice that can transform us. So as we end and we transfer a time of prayer, we can go back to Psalm 95 and just ask the Lord, help us to hear your voice in this. Help us to hear about who you are and what you've done and believe. Look at some of the promises. We're in his hand. The sea, the land, the depths, the height, everything can imagine are in his hands. So it's a voice of protection and provision. Look at the voice that he make a joyful noise to the rock, the rock of our salvation. Remember that image is, that image actually comes from Exodus when they're going through the wilderness and they accuse God of, actually they, they bring a formal charge. Uh, why did you take us out of Egypt? You brought us out to kill us. Attempted murder. And they stand upon the rock, and Moses takes the rod, which represents God's justice, and strikes the rock. And out of the rock comes the life-giving water that brings them life. The rock was struck so they could live, and that's pointing us to our rock, Christ, who was struck by God's justice on the cross so life could flow to us. It says, you're the shepherd. 
you pastor, where you bring the group and you lead each by hand, where you take each sheep by hand. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And what does he say? My sheep know and they hear my voice. They fall. They follow and follow me. And what we hear is in Augustine's famous line, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And what he says, it's only in worship where you encounter the living Lord and hear his voice and worship the one you were truly made to worship will your hearts ever find the rest that it's seeking in all these other things. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word. And we thank you for what it presents to us and how it can change and shape us. And so we ask that you would help us to be the kind of people who truly experience worship who come into your presence, who sing your praises, who have all of the deepest longings, desires of our souls satisfied, have all of our deep anxieties and fears uh, met and dealt with and quenched. And so we ask that you would help us to know you as these things, to joyfully sing as you're the mighty creator who created all things good, and then joyfully sing as you're the merciful Redeemer who sent your Son to redeem and eliminate the effects of sin as it's broken your creation. So we ask that you help make all of these things true in our lives.